a reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 to 38. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I will perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the, fa- and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed a fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead, and is alive, he was lost, and is found. The word of the Lord. Christ Church Vienna is a gospel-driven externally focused, extended family, Anglican mission for Vienna. That's our vision and values statement. And over the next several weeks leading up to Christmas, that's going to guide our sermon series on Sunday mornings. We're going to spend a few weeks looking at what it is to be gospel-driven, to be an extended family, to be externally focused, and to be for a place that God has put us. This morning, our focus, and next week, is going to be on being a gospel-driven church. And kind of reading directly from our vision and values statement, we talk about being a church that is driven or fueled by the gospel of grace that is found in Jesus Christ. That we want to be the kind of people that allow the gospel to change our worldview, to affect our identity. And we want to apply God's grace in our way of thinking in every day of life, so that it increases our dependence on Christ 
and even increases our humility and love towards one another. So this morning, we're going to do something very simple, which is just look at the gospel. What is the basic gospel message? Many of you who have grown up in church have heard the gospel tons of times. But as I've found, it doesn't matter how long I've been following Christ, I need to go back to the basics. What has God done for us in Jesus Christ? And that's essentially what we're going to do this morning, is look at the basics as we see it in the gospel in a parable that Jesus tells. So the basic starting point for the gospel is that there's a problem. The problem boils down to this, alienation. We are all alienated or separated in some way. And while the gospel talks about this in relation to God, we experience alienation on all levels throughout life. That's essentially one of the common problems we deal with in this world. You can deal with alienation socially, relationally, personally. I've talked about being uh, in England for a couple of years, uh, a number of years back when I was studying over there, and during that time, I felt a lot of alienation. And that was not due to the English, it was due to me being an American. That alienation comes from being an expat, if you've ever been one, or an immigrant, as some of you are. Living in a country that is not your own, with culture and norms and social expectations that you aren't used to. I mean, how long did it take me to figure out which way to look to cross the street? I literally looked both ways my entire time in England. Or we would go to lunch at the college where I was studying, and I remember sitting there thinking, what is this food they are giving me? I've never had anything like this. And the expectations about how you're supposed to go about the eating process, and the fact that you're supposed to do something with a fork and knife at the same time, I spent months trying to mimic what others were doing and then finally gave up and just went to the old American way of doing things. But the whole time, I felt different. I knew I stood out. I was an alien, socially speaking, culturally speaking. It was not my home, and I felt it. Now, most of that was actually pretty funny, even though for a while I was, I was rather homesick. But many alienations that we experience are much more painful and traumatic. Most of you have experienced relational alienation. Somebody who grew distant from you that used to be very close. Or a boyfriend or girlfriend who just slams the door in your face. Or death bringing separation and therefore alienation. Some in this room I know have dealt with a sort of alienation that comes from the betrayal and abandonment by a spouse. I've been amazed by the number of friends over the past few years who have had a spouse leave them for somebody else. One good friend of mine called out of the blue when he told me about his wife leaving him and his four boys for one of the boy's teachers. It's just completely out of nowhere. He had no idea it was coming. And it devastated him. It wrecked him as he, as he wondered, what am I worth? How could I have been so dumb? How did I get fooled all these years? Feeling low about himself, feeling completely broken. The alienation caused by another person brought great pain and suffering in his own life. And then there's even just personal alienation. I mean, sometimes that's, the, that's that process you go through when you're in high school, a teenager, just trying to figure out who you are, 
who you are in relation to your parents and into the community around you. Am I supposed to be the smart kid or the athletic kid, or am I going to be the funny kid or the quiet kid? And honestly, you'll go through that period from like 11 to 25 with multiple iterations of who am I. And at times during that process, you're not sure who you are. You actually have alienation with your own self. We deal with that alienation with ourselves when we deal with the cycle of guilt and shame when we're struggling with our own sinfulness or failures in life and recognizing this is not who I want to be. Or as many in this room I know have dealt with the, the challenges of depression and that, that, that wrestling with I'm not who I want to be. What the Bible tells us What the gospel suggests is that all of these alienations that we can experience and will experience in life stem from a root alienation. It's being alienated from, separated from God. And our great need is to be reconciled to God. Think about it. Adam and Eve are in the garden, right, according to Genesis 2 and 3, and they are completely open and unashamed before God, and completely open and unashamed with one another. Their relationship with God and with one another is complete unity. But as sin comes in, it breaks their relationship with God. They now have to hide from God. They are now covering their own selves up, and they're blaming the other person. Alienation from God results in alienation from one another, and even alienation from yourself and the world around you. The gospel is good news. It is good news that God in Jesus has reconciled us to himself. And in a sense, that's what Jesus is getting at in the prodigal son parable. In the prodigal son parable, Jesus is talking about two alienated sons, two lost sons, two sons who have determined their own way to avoid God the Father. Now, we have to remember the context, the setting for this. The setting for the parable of the prodigal son, we, get, we didn't actually read it, but it's in Luke 15, 1 and 2. And in Luke 15, 1 and 2, what we find is that Jesus is teaching and tax collectors and sinners have gathered. The tax collectors and sinners are there, and the Pharisees and scribes show up. And they say, what is this man doing hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? This is very similar to what we talked about last week for those of you who are with us. The tax collectors and sinners, the Pharisees and scribes, and Jesus says, okay, let me tell you a story. A certain man had two sons. Jesus' intent in telling this parable is to say that there are two ways we can avoid God as our Savior. We can avoid God by breaking all the rules and being very bad, as the younger brother does, We can avoid God by trying to keep all the rules and being very good so God owes us. So what I'd like to do as we unpack this parable is to look at these two ways and how they show our need for God's grace and then look at this parable and how in it we see the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So the first thing we get in this parable is that there's a certain man who has two sons. And really, it seems like this parable is about the younger brother because that's the one who the bulk of the time is spent on. There was a certain man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. 
Now, if any of you have heard sermons on this before, you know that what the son was doing was treating his father as if he was dead. You didn't receive your share of the inheritance until your father died. And so the younger brother is saying, hey, dad, let's just consider you dead. You consider me dead. Now give me my share of the property that will come to me when you do die. I don't want you. I want your stuff so I can live my own life. And the father, unlike any Middle Eastern patriarch in his day, is generous and gives the son everything he asks for. And the younger son takes his share of the property and goes to a distant land and squanders it in reckless living, we read. But with his money gone, a famine hits the land and he finds himself in deep need. He enslaves himself, becoming a servant to somebody in that land, feeding his pigs. And there he is at the, at the end of his rope, at the bottom of his pit, starving to death, feeding pigs in a foreign land. And he comes to his senses and says, why don't I be a servant in my own dad's house? At least there I won't starve to death. And so he returns, and he returns expecting the worst, but instead finds his father running to embrace him, to return him to be a son, throwing a party for him, celebrating that his son has come back. Now, the younger brother in the story was Jesus talking about those tax collectors and sinners who had come. The younger brother represents what it is to be irreligious, to avoid God by doing all the wrong things. This younger brother broke all of the rules and laws and decided to set his own course. And most of us, when we think about prodigal sons or the prodigal son story, we think about the black sheep in the family, the one who did all the wrong sorts of things. We think about people that we know that have gone down that road of pleasure that turned into addiction, that turned into bankruptcy and a broken life. And that is some of what's being represented here. But I think when we think about it that way, there's very few of us that can relate to the younger brother. But I actually think there's many ways that even those of us who have kept many of the rules can relate to the younger brother. And it's to think not just about what the younger brother does explicitly, but what's behind what the younger brother does. You see, the younger brother ultimately values freedom. He wants autonomy and his own self-discovery and self-expression. And of course, what could be more American than that? The younger brother way of thinking is very American. We as Americans are individualists and relativists. So every person is meant to find their own way, to chart their own course, to make something of themselves in America, and we all agree with that. And of course, no one way is the right way nowadays. And ultimately, whatever you want to do is great so long as you're happy and it doesn't hurt somebody else. That basic way of thinking permeates all of us. It, it's to suggest that life is like a choose-your-own-adventure book. I don't know if you remember those, but I read those in early elementary school. You get to the end of chapter 1, and it says, continue on, turn to page 119 or page 49. Oh, and I'd decide which one to turn to and go to 119 and then finish that chapter, and it would send you back in the book to one of the other pages. In a choose-your-own-adventure book, it's like you're writing the story yourself. And most of us as Americans like to think about our lives that way. I am writing the novel of me right now. 
I can choose the way the chapters lay out and the way the direction goes. Life is about writing your own story. But the gospel tells us the story has already been written. And we need rather to discover how God desires to write us into his story. Younger brothers, younger brothers think that all paths and ideas are okay unless it is someone or something that is going to challenge my own way of living. What ruffles a younger brother's feathers is when somebody is going to threaten what is my priority. You can't tell me what to do with my body. You can't tell me what to do with my property. Who are you to have any say in my lifestyle? You have no right to tell me how to spend my money. That defensive viciousness that can come out of us is a younger brother way of thinking. I must have autonomy, freedom, and liberty for myself to do my own thing, to live my own way. C.S. Lewis gave a warning about this, pointing in the direction of what the final judgment is like when he said, there are two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Younger brothers, like the younger brother in this story, choose to live their own life, to, to value freedom and self-discovery, and to turn away from the Father. But what happens in this story shocks the audience. As they're listening to it, they cannot believe that the father in this story does not run out of the house and chase his son away. Instead, he runs and embraces his son and welcomes him back as a son and reinherits him and calls all the village elders together in the entire community and says, let's celebrate this son of mine. I thought he was dead, but he's alive again. He was lost but is found. Come and celebrate with me. And the entire audience listening to Jesus telling this parable is aghast that a father would do such a loving and gracious thing, such a foolishly lavish thing. But what was more shocking to the audience was the parable's emphasis was not on the younger brother, but on the older brother. You see, as the parable turns two-thirds of the way through, in verse 25, we turn from the younger son to the older son. The older son comes back from the field. He finds a servant, says, what's all this celebrating and noise? The servant says, oh, isn't it great? Your brother has been found. Your father killed the fattened calf. He's brought the whole village here to celebrate, but the older brother refuses to enter. The entire village is inside celebrating, and the older brother stands outside. This was incredible incredibly shameful to the father. He was challenging the father's honor before the entire community. The father does not do what other Middle Eastern patriarchs would have done, which is send the servants to drive the older son away. Instead, the father goes out himself. The music would have stopped. All the village elders would have leaned out the window wondering what the father was going to do.
And the older brother begins to berate his father before the entire community. Look, he says, look. That's not a way of honorably recognizing your father. Honorable father, I have a problem. Look, buddy. Look, buddy. All these years I've served you. I've never disobeyed you. You never even gave me a goat. But this, this son of yours, he can't acknowledge the son as his brother. This son of yours goes and squanders your property on prostitutes. We don't actually know that he squandered it on prostitutes. The story just says he squandered it in reckless living. Perhaps this is what the older brother was assuming he would like to do if he could follow the younger brother's path. The older brother's assessment of the whole thing is he doesn't deserve anything, and you owe me everything. I've never disobeyed you. But why does the older brother obey? It's not out of joy and love for his father, wanting to celebrate his father's goodness and return it with his obedience. He doesn't actually want a relationship with a father. He wants his father's stuff. He knows that if he does everything right, when his father dies, it all becomes his. The father begs and pleads with him, affirming his love. But in the end, the older brother is outside of the house, outside of the feast, outside of the celebration. Now, as is obvious, the older brother represented the Pharisees and scribes whose judgmentalness was being brought on Jesus. The older brother represents following the rules and the customs and the laws and doing what's expected. It's the religious way. So think for a moment about what Jesus is suggesting. Jesus is suggesting that following all the rules, being good and religious can be a way of being alienated from God. And again, we may not look like the Pharisees in life. We may not be super religious people, but many of us have older brother tendencies. Older brothers are those who follow the rules and expect to have that returned to them. Older brothers are success-oriented, performance-driven people. In other words, Northern Virginia in a place like Vienna is filled with older brothers. People who assume that if you, if you study hard, you'll get the A. If you raise your kids a certain way, they'll end up being good citizens. If you work hard, you perform well, you will get paid. You will get rewarded. We are merit-based people, success-oriented people, performance-driven people. That's an older brother mentality. Older brothers, too, have to be known as good people. That side of us that wants everyone to recognize us as good people because our self-worth, our identity is based on being somebody who does things right, who follows the rules, who's pretty good. And ultimately, older brothers assume that God's got to accept people who are good. When it comes down to it, there's some weighing of scales, and so long as I'm better than the worst, I've got a good chance of being in. But older brothers also, and we see this in ourselves, can't take criticism we downplay our faults. We're always comparing. And we think of salvation as dependent upon acing the test or at least getting a passing grade. I have a fear that many of us in our older brother tendencies are a lot like elementary school students and their fear of their teachers. 
Over the past few months, I've had time to spend with elementary school students in a couple of different uh, contexts, and here's what I've found. Almost to a kid, they are scared of their teachers. Sorry to those of you who are teachers of elementary school kids out there, but in general, that's the way kids respond to their teachers. They are not trying to love and care for others. They're trying to avoid getting in trouble, and they assume teachers are out to get them in trouble. They also assume that there's some trick to most of the tests and papers and exams, and you've got to follow all the rules, dot all the I's, cross all the T's. And so kids are often very nervous about trying to figure out what the algorithm is that the teacher wants to get the grade or how to avoid the look of the teacher and not get in trouble. By the time they're in high school, most kids outgrow that. (laughs) But that elementary school student way of thinking about your teacher is how most older brothers and many of us think about God. Just got to try to avoid getting in trouble. I got to figure out what it is that he wants me to do to get the A. But older brothers are never sure that they've done enough because even at their best, they may not be measuring up. That's what religion is. Never quite sure if you measured up. The gospel says there's only one who has ever measured up. And you need to put your faith in him and not yourself. In the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the two lost sons, Jesus is showing two ways to avoid God. Two ways to reject the father's love. The younger brother throws off all the rules, goes his own way, and is on the journey of self-discovery. And the audience hearing this would have recognized that anyone who lived the way this younger brother did should be cut off from God. But what's amazing in this story is that Jesus shows that the older brother has also rejected the father's love and is avoiding the father. The older brother is self-disciplined and obeys all the rules, and by any cultural or religious standards, is good and upright. Yet in the end, who's outside of the feast? It's the older brother. It's not his badness that keeps him out, but his pride in his goodness. It's his pride in his moral record-keeping that keeps himself out of the feast. The gospel, the gospel is a third way. It's not avoiding God by being religious and very good, nor is it avoiding God by the way of self-discovery and doing whatever you want. In the gospel, Jesus, and in this parable, Jesus is redefining sin. Sin is not just breaking all the rules, but it's trying to be your own savior, trying to chart your own course. Jesus is redefining not only what sin is, he's redefining how we relate to God. It's not the good who are in and the bad who are out, but everyone is out. Everyone is wrong. Everyone falls short. Everyone is alienated and needs to admit this and accept the Father's embrace. Jesus, in this parable, is redefining God himself as a loving, generous, and forgiving father who at great cost to himself offers to reconcile us to him. You know, the solution to the problem of our alienation 
comes in the middle of the parable in verse 17. It comes when that younger son is at the depths of his pit, at the end of his rope, and he says, and and we read, and he came to himself. He came to himself. Or as one translation put it, he came to his senses. Once he comes to his senses, he returns to the Father. He comes to his senses is to have an aha moment, a how could I be so stupid moment, a what in the world am I doing here starving, feeding pigs? What's wonderful about what happens next is that while he comes to his senses and recognizes that he needs his father, he doesn't quite fully get the love and generosity of his father. Because as he's coming back, he has a plan for making restitution, a plan for penance. Not only does he say, Father, I've sinned against you, he says, but Dad, I also have a plan. What I am going to do is I'm going to become a servant in your house, and servants got paid. He said, and once I've earned enough money, I will pay you back for my share of the inheritance. So as he's walking up the road, he's going to confess his sin and lay out his plan of restitution. But before he can even utter a word in his plan of restitution, the father runs and tackles him and embraces him and hugs him and puts shoes on his feet and a ring on his finger and a cloak on his back. He says, you are my son. There's no plan of restitution. I will absorb the cost myself to bring you back as my son, to celebrate that you are alive. The older brother, however, refuses to come in. The father entreats him to come in. But you know what's interesting about this story is it ends short. You see, in Hebrew storytelling, in Middle Eastern storytelling, especially when somebody said a certain man had two sons, the average audience member listening to Jesus that day expected two parallel stories to follow the same course. So as they heard the story about a younger son squandering all his father's property and going off to a distant land and coming to the end of his rope, then coming to his senses and being reconciled to his father and entering into the feast of celebration, then the story goes to the older brother and an older brother who refuses to come in and is rejecting the father, but the father comes out. They expected it to finish with the older brother going into the house, but it doesn't. It doesn't because Jesus ends the story short on purpose. He ends the story short saying, and the older brother listened to the father saying, I love you, I care about you. The end. Because Jesus wants the audience to write themselves into the story. He's specifically pointing to the Pharisees saying, and what will you do with the father's love? What will you do with me? And he's doing the same with us saying, how will you finish this story? How will you respond to the Father's lavish love? The gospel. The gospel says the older and the younger brother are both lost, both alienated, both trying to avoid God. They both need to recognize their alienation from God, the Father. They both need to recognize and admit how they have tried to avoid God and sought to be their own Savior. They both need to come to their senses. 
all of us need to admit our lostness and our need. And interestingly, both the older brother and the younger brother need the father to come out of the house to them. The father runs down the road to embrace the younger son. The father shamefully leaves the party to go and beg his older son. At great cost to himself, the father humbles himself, bears the shame that they should have endured to bring them into his home. Both the older brother and the younger brother, as all of us, need the gospel of grace. Jesus is showing us the gospel of grace in this parable. It's a different way than every other way of relating to God. And here's what you need to hear. Just like the younger brother, you cannot be so bad, so far gone, that you are outside of the realm of the love and grace and mercy that God the Father offers. You also can't be so good that you don't need the Father's love and grace and forgiveness. In Jesus, in Jesus, God the Father has come out of the house. In Jesus, God has come out of the house at great cost to himself in order to forgive our debts to embrace us as his children, to invite us into an eternal feast. The gospel of grace changes everything. Our identity, our worldview, the way we think about ourselves and life. When we are reconciled to God the Father through Jesus Christ, we can finally be reconciled to the world around us, to other people, and even to ourselves. And that's what I want our church to be about, this very simple gospel of grace. Not goodness, not badness, but Christ and his mercy coming out of the house to bring us in. Let's pray. God, our Father, we seek so many other ways to find heaven to be happy, to discover life. But deep down in, we are alienated, alienated from you and from others and from ourself. Give us eyes to see the love of the Father and to let his gospel of grace through Jesus Christ embrace us, forgive us, and bring us into the home that we long for. Amen. How deep the Father's love for us How vast beyond all
Bring many sons to glory. 